We come now uh, to our sermon passage, and we're, we're continuing on in our new sermon series in the book of Exodus, the book of memory and hope. And this week we are at the end of, uh, of the last verse of chapter 1, and the first passage of chapter 2. This is a passage of scripture um, that I've read probably a hundred times in my life. This is one of the most famous ones. It's the birth of Moses, the greatest figure in the Old Testament. But it's a passage that I don't think I allow myself to weep over until this week. And uh, so, with that said, not front-loaded necessarily, but <laughs> let's read together. Exodus 1, 22 through uh, 2, 10. Um, this is God's Word. Good, beautiful, and true. Then Pharaoh gave this word to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and she saw the baby, and look, the little boy was crying. So she had compassion. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go get one of the Hebrew women who is nursing to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the little girl went and got the baby's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you wages. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses. Parts to see the glories of your work of redemption. Most importantly, not just for saving one baby 4,000 years ago, but what this all leads to, you saving us in Christ Jesus and calling us to yourself. I pray all of this in his matchless name. Amen. So far in Exodus, time and events has happened quickly. If you've listened the past few weeks or you've ever read like chapter 1, stuff goes by really quick. It's almost like a, the start of a movie and, you're, and it's catching you up to speed and you're just seeing this stuff in a flash. Like if you've ever watched the Lord of the Rings movies, I've seen them uh, probably a hundred times. <laughs> but you know, it, it spans like a thousand years in that first few seconds. That's what this is going on in chapter one. And like I said a couple weeks ago, the book of Exodus is a sequel. If you drop in and can you continue on Lord of the Rings, it's like starting in the two towers. You're missing fellowship of the ring. Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off. And Genesis, if you've ever read through it, it I think it can be hard for us to, to see it necessarily. But there's a theme that runs through Genesis. It's what will God do in the face of human sin? Will he simply judge it and smite humanity to destruction? Or how will he respond? Will he respond in grace? Well, he promises to destroy the power of sin and what it has done to his creation. And he begins to do that work of redemption, that work of promise through one man and one family. 
family of Abraham. And in Genesis, that one man and his wife, Sarah, grow from two people to seven. And when Genesis ends off, that family of 70 is a couple generations after Abraham, but the promise to destroy the power of sin is nowhere near met. Not at all. And so Exodus opens up at the end of the cliffhanger of the book of Genesis. Now, as I said, the opening of Exodus is like the opening of a movie, and the narrator is kind of setting everything up that's going to follow. And this family that we saw at the end of Genesis that's grown from two people to 70 at the beginning of Exodus has gone from 70 to a multitude. It doesn't give a number, but it's a huge amount. It's a people. It's gone from one family to an identified And it doesn't just mean 70 folks. It means hundreds of thousands. And they're flourishing. They're thriving. They're growing. Even as strangers in a strange land. But the tide turns in Exodus 1. As Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, sees this flourishing, this growing, this thriving people, and he grows fearful that they're going to get so big that they decide to leave. And that's And so what he does is he enslaves them. He fears their flourishing, he enslaves them, and he builds the incredible wealth of Egypt on their backs. In fact, in Exodus 1, it says that after he had enslaved them, the wealth of Egypt had grown to the point that they had to build two store cities to just store their wealth, the treasure. So this uh, system of slavery that Pharaoh put in place, it was incredibly profitable. Bricks got made. It was incredibly uh, efficient. It seems to work. And the wealth overflows. But Pharaoh was not content to squeeze every cent of labor he can from the Israelites. He wants to make sure that he can use them up and get all the profit he can out of their bodies and throw them away to control their population. So he tries to command, and this was our passage last week, he tries to command two Hebrew midwives, women who are tasked with their entire, in our modern terms, career and lives are geared toward shepherding life into the world and caring for life. And thriving. That is their job. He tries to command them to kill in secrecy. Every Hebrew baby boy that is born. But it doesn't work. He's outsmarted by these two seemingly lowly women. And it doesn't work. So in our passage today, where we started reading here in verse 22, and I'm just setting this up to, to paint the picture. He no longer tries to work in secret. He establishes a law. I want you to imagine that the legislature passed the law tomorrow that said something like this. Pharaoh commanded all his people. He commanded his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. He gave a license to kill to every person in Egypt if they saw a baby boy that they knew was a Hebrew to pick them up and to murder them. It's dark. This is terror. It's a program of absolute terror. Could there be any hope? In such a situation, in such darkness, is there anything to grab a hold of? Is there any light at all? Or is that promise that God made to Abraham, that he's going to bless every family on the earth to that family, that promise that he is going to destroy the power and effects of sin in this world, is it going to be 
killed? Is the promise going to be killed along with all those Hebrew babies? get an answer to that question, which is really what the rest of Exodus is, an answer to that question. We zoom in from the Israelites, which we've been talking about a people, we zoom in to one family and the birth of their son, and three women that God works through to sustain His promise. And that's our passage this morning. So our first section here is verses 1 and 2, is called Hope Springs. Hope Springs. In verse 1, after we meet him in Genesis, this is not an inspiring sign. Levi is a violent man. That's his defining feature in the book of Genesis, is violence. He's rash. He's a man whose own father, when his father was dying, and he was kind of saying his final words, his will and testament, in a sense, to his sons, he, had t he told Levi that but Levi's violence had cursed him his family. That Levi's violence had cursed them to be a scattered people. That Levi and his kids are just going to be scattered because of the, his violence. But like he loves to do, God interrupts the curses of our world to work something different. In fact, the picture in Exodus is God, is Pharaoh is the exact opposite of God. Pharaoh takes the flourishing and the thriving of the Israelites and uses it as a commodity to build his own wealth. And God takes the curses of sin in this world, even the family curses, what some people would call generational curses, and he flips them on his head. He flips them on his head. God takes the curse of Levi's violence, and he changes it into something else entirely. Here's what I mean. Generations later, generations later, when the Israelites received the promised land, after they were freed from because they were going to be spread out through the whole nation to serve as priests. These descendants of this violent man who had cursed his family with violence became the representatives to the people of God. They represented God to the people. They were servants to serve the flourishing and the thriving of the nation of Israel. And it even says in Joshua 13, they didn't receive any land because their inheritance was the Lord. What a promise. Their inheritance was the Lord. The land they lived in, the air they breathed, the water they swam in was the grace of God. They were scattered, but scattered to be a blessing. Now I'm getting ahead of myself because that's not what this passage is about. Before all that, before we see Levi's curse reversed in a sense, we have this one family. In all the darkness and all the wrong and the curse of what Egypt as a, as a civilization had become. And here, God provides a new hope. Nothing short of the beginning of a new creation. That's what we're meant to see in verse 3. Verse 3, it talks about when the, the mother sees the child and she sees uh, that he was, what, beautiful. Translations say beautiful. Some say, uh, I can't remember what the other ones said, but the, the words that is used here, that's translated beautiful, is the exact word that's used in Genesis 1 when it says God created and he saw that it was good. It's the exact same word. We're supposed to see here in the birth of this baby, not just a pretty baby, that's not the point, that God is doing something new. He's calling a new creation into the world. But that seems a bit 
elusive, right? For us to understand how the birth of one baby could be a sign that hope is not lost, especially in all its darkness. But before we get any kind of answer to how this one baby might be a, a, a shining beacon of hope in this darkness, things get much darker. Which brings me to my second section, an impossible situation. As we see in verse 3, the mother is in an absolutely impossible situation. Notice in this passage, the dad, after verse 1, isn't mentioned at all. Not at all. Now, I don't know why that is. I don't know why he's absent from this story, why he's not a factor. But how many mothers have felt that way in their lives? But the passage narrows in on the mother, and she has this newborn baby, and she's living in the terror of this law that allows anyone to grab her baby and kill it. That's the, that's the environment she's living in with this new baby boy. Kill it by throwing it to the Nile River. Now the Nile, the Nile River was the absolute center of Egyptian life. In fact, one of the gods of Egypt, was her name was, or his name, not sure if it's a female god or, or not, uh, was Hapi, H-A-P-I. She was the god of fertility and life and seemed to be embodied in the Nile. Now the Nile, it, it flooded every year and it made the, 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 the area around it incredibly fertile. So agriculture just boomed. It was the very center of, of, of Egyptian life. And as Pharaoh tells them not just to kill the babies, but to toss them into the Nile River, it's almost like in a sense we can see him telling them to sacrifice these babies to this false god. To toss these babies to Hopi. In worship. But back to the mother. She's protected the baby boy for three months. And I don't know how. I don't know how, but she has. But she can't do it anymore. Presumably she either was soon to be forced back to work. Or it was just getting too difficult to keep the three month old hidden from the watching eyes of the Egyptians. We aren't told what's going on in her mind. I can't imagine. But notice she builds a basket with care. A basket made out of papyrus, she coats it with tar and pitch, which is a natural occurring kind of glue. And we know it had a top on it because later on it talks about Pharaoh's daughter opened the basket. And we can miss what the text is pointing out here. But she was building a casket. She was building a casket. The mom did not know what to do. She couldn't bear the thought of someone else grabbing her baby boy and throwing him into the water. And in her terror, the only thing she can think to do is to make a coffin for her baby. What pain. What impossible grief. What a hopeless situation. At the end of verse 3, she puts the baby in the basket and she places it among the reeds by the riverbank. And that might be her last last bitter rebellion against Pharaoh, that she didn't throw that basket in the water. She placed it in the reeds, but it feels like such a small action. Such a small action to do that. But all hope is not lost. And here's what I mean. It's a subtle thing in this passage. But we're told that this little coffin is not just a basket. Or this basket is not just a coffin. The word used to describe it is a word only used one other time in the entire Bible in the story of Noah, to describe the boat, the ark that he built, saved from almost certain death in the waters of a flood. 
Like God had taken the curse of Levi and turned it into a blessing, blessing, he takes this coffin and he turns it into a boat that would deliver this baby from certain death into new life. And new life not just for himself, but a life that reverberates throughout history to the Lord Jesus Christ and thus to us. Let's continue on uh, next section. Two daughters meet. In verse 4, we meet another member of this family. And not just the mother, we meet a little girl. Her name's Miriam. It's not mentioned in this passage, but we learned that later on. And she's watched her mother in all of this. It's a spunky little sister. She's watched this baby in these three months. She watched her mom make that basket with care. And now she stands at a distance to see what would happen to her brother. Verse 5 shows us what she saw. It actually shifts and almost shows us from her perspective. In verse 5, she sees a member of another family altogether, the daughter of Pharaoh himself. And we're told she's coming to bathe in the water, and she sees the basket. And I love the way the passage describes it. Look at verse 6. She takes the basket, and she opened it and saw the baby. And look, the little boy was crying. And she had compassion. It's only here, I want to point this out, it's only here that the baby makes his first cry. Now that doesn't mean he didn't cry for three months. But the fact that uh, Moses, who wrote this years later about himself, points out that it's here that he cries. It's almost like a picture again that this is when he's born. He is born out of death into new life. And it's the cry of life in this coffin as he is saved. This coffin has become a boat, and the Nile and its waters of certain death have become a womb, in a sense. Now, I can imagine what was going on in the little girl's head watching from a distance. In verse 8, she seizes the moment. She inserts herself into the scene, and I want you to think about it. It's a slave child and the daughter of Pharaoh, but Miriam, she speaks up maybe where an adult couldn't. With boldness, she addresses Pharaoh's daughter. And her young, brilliant mind has hatched an idea. Shall I go get one of the Hebrew women who is nursing to nurse this baby for you? And the rest of the passage is filled with just irony after irony. To the little girl's question, Pharaoh's daughter says yes, and the little girl runs, and she doesn't get just any random nursing woman. She gets her mother. And her mother... The mother who in despair had crafted this coffin for his son when she could protect him no longer. She's reunited, reunited with her baby boy and she's allowed to care for him. But now in peace, without fear of being discovered because now she's protected from Pharaoh's command by Pharaoh's own daughter. And the irony doesn't end there. Look at verse 9. Not only is the mother reunited to her child and now saved, she is actually paid to care for her own child by Pharaoh's daughter. Meaning that the Pharaoh who had commanded this child be thrown in the Nile is now the one fronting the bill for his uh, postnatal care. Now to understand the height of this irony, we have to know who this baby is. And verse 10 finally tells us. It actually holds the name back until verse 10. And I want you to imagine, uh, when this was written, it's not like every Hebrew had their own copy of Exodus that they just carried around and could open up and have their morning quiet time. What would happen is people would pull the scrolls out and they would read it out. And so there was almost a bit of drama here. Who is this baby? In verse 10 we find out it's Moses. Moses. Moses who would be the one to lead God's people out of slavery. 
And where did this man get his education in the house of Pharaoh? Pharaoh paid for it. Moses, the one through whom God would give his gracious law at Mount Sinai. Moses, the one through whom God would give instructions for the tabernacle, which was God's house in the middle of the people. His way of saying, I am dwelling with you. You live in a tent, I'm going to live in a tent. Because I am your God and you are my people. Moses, who would write the majority of the first five books of the Bible. Now the original readers of the book of Exodus, or listeners, who were Israelites roughly about 120 years after the events in our passage, they were meant to read this passage this, like we've read it this morning and understand two things. The first one was this, that God was a promise-keeping God. And he would not fail them. And the second was this. That they were supposed to read this and understand that God had kept his promises through Moses. And so everything that Moses had taught and done must be taken seriously. They were to read this story to know that Moses wasn't just some political leader who had gained power. He wasn't just some charismatic leader who had shown up on the scene. But I want to point something out. That this is not a story that ends with Moses. Or even ends with what God accomplished through Moses. Yes, Moses was the greatest figure of the Old Testament. His shadow looms large over the entirety of the Bible. But Moses was an imperfect man. And in his imperfection as a leader, as a mediator who stood between God and the people, as a redeemer who brought them out of slavery, he pointed to a perfect mediator who was to come. Moses, as the book of Hebrews says, was a servant in God's house. But he pointed to who the book of Hebrews says was a son over God's house, Jesus. The one who actually builds God's house, the church. So Moses was rescued this day, so many years ago, as a part of a long chain that... Oh, you little guys, while it is us to free us from the chains. Jesus, who would reveal God's intentions for us. Intentions not of judgment and condemnation, but intentions of grace that would remove the penalty of sin from us. Jesus, who would not just come near death like Moses does here, but Jesus, who would experience the cruelty of unjust death on the cross. Yet, Jesus, who in his experience of death gutted death of its power. So that those who come to him need not ever fear what death means. Because it has no power over us. For while death has reigned in our human history, it held no power over Jesus. And when he rose victorious in his resurrection, Jesus did what Moses could never do. He defeated all of our enemies in a final act. And so all the power of darkness and evil in this world has no claim on us. We need not fear the heaviness and the death and the weight of sin that we might feel on our shoulders, sins against us and sins that we've committed, cannot stand in the power of the grace of Jesus Christ. It can't. Sin has no claim on us. Death has no victory. Satan and the power of darkness and the greatest strength cannot stand before the new life that has dawned at his tomb that was turned into the womb of a new creation. So with that in mind, as we end our time in this passage, I want to leave us with a couple of takeaways. The first is this. God often works in ways we may not expect. Let's always be amazed at how He works, but never surprised 
Why? Because he's shown us his intentions for us in Jesus Christ. And so when we lose hope, when things are incredibly difficult, we don't say faith over fear and pretend things aren't hard, but we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. And we say, that's God's intention for me. That's God's intention for me. That's how much he loves me. That's how far he would go to win me from my small desires, to win me from my sin, to win me from the sins against me, so that I will not <laughs> face a futile existence that's someday death and then that what awaits me is glory and honor and love. Another thing, God often works through surprising people. I said last week when talking about the two Hebrew midwives, Pharaoh set up this whole plan. He structured this entire society of oppression and hate. And he had all the power and the say-so to do it. And what was it undone by? Five women that he didn't account for. In fact, you may have noticed when he gave the command, throw the baby boys in the Nile, but let the girls live. He thought the girls were nothing to fear. And what's he undone by? Two Hebrew midwives that would not do what he said. A mother who unknowingly built a boat for her baby. A little girl named Miriam and his own daughter. Now in Egypt, they would have never been like, these are our heroesses. That's not a word. Heroes that are women. Um, <laughs> heroines, sorry. No, they would have been overlooked and unsuspected. God often does that. He often works through surprising people. And you this morning, me this morning, we are not too small or too young. We're not too poor. We're not too handicapped. We're not too anything for God to infuse our hearts and our lives and our actions with His grace and to multiply that grace for the sake of His kingdom. If you're here in this morning and you feel that God is inactive, know that He's not. The same God who worked here is at work for you. Now, I can't tell you how that pans out. I'm not telling you to go home and make a coffin basket or anything like that. Um, that's not our takeaway. But the same God who worked in the midst of darkness and in, in, in the face of greater opposition than I can even imagine. The God in this passage is our God. He is not absent. He is not inactive. He's working right now and always, working all things together for His glory and for our good. Now, that does not mean that all things that happen to you are good. That is not our takeaway. The path of faith, walking by faith and by, not by sight, does not mean that life's travails hit you. And you say, oh, this is good. I'm glad for this. No, it does not mean that. But it does mean that in his mysterious way, God bends even the most evil of intentions against us, even the sin of our own heart. He bends it to draw us to himself that we might not place our hope in any other thing or person. So I want to end this morning with some words that we said earlier. Some words from Romans 8. Hear them, 
this morning as the Holy Spirit speaks to us even now. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a love. What a mysterious love. What a, frankly, frustrating love sometimes. We don't understand how you orchestrate and how you work. We don't understand your timetable. But we stand in awe at your grace. Work in us the faith that can look to you and to see with clarity in a world full of distortion the Lord Jesus. Set our hearts' affections on Him. Cause us to, to flee all other th things that call for our allegiance and throw ourselves entirely upon Him, knowing that your mercy through Him is a sure foundation for us to land on. Do this work in us, Lord, that we might not be those who hope in things that aren't worth hoping in, that we might not be people that chase after the pharaohs of this world and their, the things that they might set up that define people as commodities to be used, but Lord, save us unto yourself to make us a kingdom of people that love like you love and value what you value. We pray this in the name of Jesus.